RadioInfluence.com. This is Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. A look inside the biggest and most controversial news stories you need to know. Now, one of the country's most relied upon law enforcement analysts, Vincent Hill. A homicide by the Maryland State Medical Examiner is believed to be the result of a fatal injury that occurred while Mr. Gray was unrestrained by a seatbelt in the custody of the Baltimore Police Department wagon. All events occurred in Baltimore City, State of Maryland. While each of these officers are presumed innocent until proven guilty, we have brought the following charges. Officer Caesar Goodson is being charged with second-degree depraved heart murder. Involuntary manslaughter, second-degree negligent assault, manslaughter by vehicle by means of gross negligence, manslaughter by vehicle by means of criminal negligence, misconduct in office for failure to secure a prisoner, failure to render aid. Hey, good evening and welcome to Beyond the Badge. I am your host, Vincent Hill. I'm back at you from Atlanta, Georgia. That means it's Tuesday. That means it's 8 p.m. That means you're listening to Radio Influence. You stopped by. You could have been anywhere else, but you stopped by for just a few minutes to listen to this crazy ex-cop talk to you about the nation's top police cases. And just at the top of the show, you heard three different sound bites. You heard... Baltimore State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby listing the charges that she charged Officer Caesar, Caesar Goodson with. Now, as we know, he was acquitted this past Thursday of all charges, and he had the most damning charges of all the officers charged. He had the most to lose with his charges. We're going to talk about why that case fell apart, what the judge saw, the same black judge that cleared the white officer was the same judge that cleared Officer Caesar Goodson, who is a black officer, we're going to talk about that in detail. We're going to talk about some of the things she said in her charging order and a contradiction from one of the lead detectives on the case. So was there some lying? Was there some manipulation going on in this trial and these charges? I believe so. And when we get into that, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Then you heard the Fullcroft, Pennsylvania officer screaming out, I've been shot, I've been shot. He was shot seven times, including in the face. He survived the shooting. I want to talk about what officers do to prepare for that, how officers go into survival mode. It's the fight or fight theory that police are faced with every day. I want to talk about the suspect, why he should not have had a gun, He's convicted felon. He's a thug. He has an American name, a.k.a. Mohammed something. You know, maybe he found Allah the last time he was in prison. 
when he just got out a few months ago. Maybe he found Allah and converted and all this stuff. But obviously he didn't leave the crime element of his life behind. So I want to talk about that. And then you heard a Forest Acres police uh, officer, a white officer, telling a driver to stop, stop, or I'll shoot. Then you heard seven shots. The driver was a 17-year-old black male. He was, quote, unquote, unarmed. I'll get into that a lot more in detail as we go along, and then you'll understand what I meant by, quote, unquote, unarmed. But was the shooting justified? It's questionable. But, again, all of these cases are relied on by officer perception. Now, remember a few weeks ago when I talked about how people without training, without knowledge of police issues and police tactics, would have a totally different perception than a police officer would? Well, I've got a little bit of training. I've done the job here and there once or twice. I pulled my gun out on a few people. So I have a pretty good perception of how I would have handled that situation. And I'll talk about that in detail I'll play the entire clip for you so you can hear that in its entirety as we go along. But first, let's go to Baltimore and state's attorney Marilyn Mosby. I swear her record is worse than the Cavs started out in the NBA Finals. She's 0 for 3 in the Baltimore 6. 0 for 3. That means none of her cases have held water. This past Thursday, Caesar Goodson was acquitted of all charges. As he should have been. Let's go down his charges real quick. Second degree murder with depraved heart. Not guilty. Manslaughter. Not guilty. Second degree assault. Not guilty. Vehicular manslaughter. Two counts. Not guilty. Reckless endangerment. Not guilty. And misconduct of office. Not guilty. Now, months ago, months ago, when... The first trial ended in a hung jury. I said, if you can't convict on the easy charges, which those charges were pretty easy, relatively speaking, for Officer Porter, there is no way in the world that you would be able to convict on second-degree murder with depraved heart, manslaughter, second-degree assault, vehicular manslaughter, do you know how hard it is to prove those cases? If you don't believe me, just go ask George Zimmerman. He got off on a murder charge because the jury was confused about murder and manslaughter and what the charging element should be. So here you have an officer who was given orders by his lieutenant to transport a prisoner. And what do police officers usually do when they're given an order that is, for all practical purpose, a lawful order. They follow it. So here's Officer Goodson, who on that day just happened to be on duty. He happened to be the officer driving the van. He got the call, as he should have been, should have gotten the call because it was his duty to drive the transport van that day. He has a lieutenant tell him, hey, officer, who I outrank, transport this prisoner down to booking. So guess what he did? He transported him. Upon arrival, the 
a transport wagon driven by Officer Caesar Goodson. Lieutenant Rice, Officer Nero, and Officer Miller loaded Mr. Gray into the wagon, and at no point was he secured by a seatbelt while in the wagon, contrary to a BPD general order. Lieutenant Rice then directed BPD wagon to stop at Baker Street. At Baker Street, Lieutenant Rice, Officer Nero, and Officer Miller removed Mr. Gray from the wagon, placed flex cuffs on his wrists, placed leg shackles on his ankles, and complete, completed required paperwork. Officer Miller, Officer Nero, and Lieutenant Rice then loaded Mr. Gray back into the wagon, placing him on his stomach, head first onto the floor of the wagon. Once again, Mr. Gray was not secured by a seatbelt in the wagon, contrary to a BPD general order. Lieutenant Rice then directed Officer Goodson to transport Mr. Gray to the central booking and intake facility. Now let me just go over this in my head. I'm sitting there, I'm in the van, it's hot, I got the AC blowing, I'm probably listening to music, maybe texting my wife, my girlfriend, whatever he has, and I hear, transport van, this is dispatch, go ahead dispatch, please pick up a prisoner for Lieutenant Rice at such and such, 10-4, I get over there, hey, stop right here so we can put flex cuffs on, okay, Lieutenant, because you outranked me, hmm. Mm, hey, go ahead and take him to booking. Tim Fort, Lieutenant, since you outrank me and this is your prisoner and I am simply the transport vehicle. So here's how this really went down, because Marilyn Mosby pointed out a few times during that segment that they violated a BPD general order, Baltimore Police Department general order for not seat belting Freddie Gray. Here's how it went down. If I had to guess, if I had to bet money, Officer Goodson did not get out of that van. Because Officer Goodson is the transport officer. They are the arresting officer. So typically, the arresting officer, there's three of them there, would have opened the door. And this is what she said, actually. Would have opened the door, placed Freddie Gray in the van, and secured him as they were supposed to do or not secured him. But here is where it gets weird. Goodson, who had the most serious charges, was just an innocent bystander. He caught a stray bullet. You know, the innocent person always catches a stray bullet. He's assigned to transport prisoners that day. Of all days, he has to have Freddie Gray in his van, who later dies days later, from a neck injury that they still, to this day, have not proven it occurred inside that van. Now, I saw medical records a year ago that said Freddie Gray had a pre-existing injury. I've told you a hundred times, I watched that takedown. I watched how they had him detained on the ground. Nothing that they did would have injured his neck. So, the fact that they had no justification, no probable cause, although... Marilyn Mosby said they had plenty of probable cause because the medical examiner ruled it a homicide, which I'm going to destroy here in just a second. Since they supposedly had all this probable cause, they charged Officer Goodson with second-degree murder. Two counts of vehicular assault. No, I'm sorry, vehicular manslaughter, vehicular assault, and misconduct misconduct. 
of office. Well, let's talk about misconduct of office and let's see who's really been committing that offense. Was it these six officers? I say not. Was it Marilyn Mosby? I say it was. And let's get into that. Let's blow this case wide open. Let's talk about why this case should be shut down. I don't know why the State Department is, I'm sorry, the Department of Justice, as quick as they were to get into Ferguson and investigate Tamir Rice, why they haven't gone into Baltimore and say, hey, dummy, Marilyn Mosby, bye, Felicia, get this crap out of here. You're making yourself look bad, your officers look bad, and your city look bad. But let's talk about some misconduct. So I'm looking at an article from uh, June 22nd, last week, and it says the police major in Freddie Gray case sued for false arrest. He admitted he never investigated the case. So you got Major Samuel Cogan of the Baltimore City Sheriff's Office who sought charges against the six officers in the Freddie Gray death case said in a federal affidavit that he never investigated the case. Wait a minute. You never investigated the case, but you decided to arrest these law enforcement officers? What? You never investigated it? You admitted that even though you signed the application for the arrest, you played no role. So let me just understand this. Now, I've signed plenty of affidavits in my career. I still have copies of a lot of the good ones that I was proud of. But there is no way in the world I would sign Vincent T. Hill to an affidavit if I wasn't involved in the case. If I stopped a stolen vehicle and I arrested them for that, I'm signing my name to it. Now, if... My buddy in another precinct stops a stolen vehicle and finds crack cocaine and all of this stuff. Hey, Vince, hey, just go ahead and sign this affidavit for me and swear out that you saw it. You must be crazy if you think I'm going to do that. A, it questions my integrity, and B, it's illegal. You can't testify to something you did not A, witness, or you did not investigate. How can you legally do it, and how can you morally do it? So, hmm, misconduct of office. I would say that this Major Samuel Cogan actually committed misconduct of office under the supervision of State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby. And I'm guessing why he did it. If I had to gamble... If I had to put money on it, I would say that he was promised a cushy state job upon his retirement. Because if he's at the rank of major, he's been on the department for a while. You don't just graduate the academy and become major. You're usually there for 10, 15, probably 20 years. Oh, you're about to retire. Well, I tell you what, Major Kogan, we got these six officers here who I know, and I'm speaking as Marilyn Mosby, I know killed this black man, Freddie Gray. And if you just sign the affidavits and make the arrest, 
when you retire, I will promise you, head of security at the governor's office, I don't know what cushy job is there in Baltimore. But I do know I would not sell my integrity. I would not sell the integrity of those officers based on the promise of a cushy state job. But I assure you, there was something like that that happened. It was either money or the promise of something else in the future. But it doesn't stop there. So now a detective, who was apparently the lead detective in this case, Detective Danielle Taylor, has come out. And this was just yesterday she came out and said this, that just minutes before she was set to testify before the grand jury, she was handed a four-page type narrative that she was supposed to read to the grand jury. And these are her words, not mine, that she felt conflicted about challenging the state's attorney on the narrative in the courtroom. With great conflict, I was sworn in and read the narrative provided. But she goes on to say she told the grand jury she was only reading the statement and that that was not her investigation. She was only reading the statement and it was not her investigation. When the jurors would ask questions, including whether Gray's arrest was legal, Taylor, the detective, said the prosecutor would intervene before she could give an answer that would conflict with her assessment. Conflict with her assessment. Her assessment being Marilyn Mosby. So while this detective, who is supposedly the lead detective, is giving testimony that's already prepared, by the way, anytime a grand jury a grand jury member would ask a question, Marilyn Mosby would chime in and give her two cents to make it fit her story. And the biggest quote from this article that I'm looking at, and this is coming from Detective Taylor, it was at that time that I realized that she, Marilyn Mosby, did not intend for me to answer any questions because all of my answers would obviously conflict with what I had just read to the grand jury. What she had just read. Now, I have never, ever, ever, ever in my life heard of a state's attorney's office providing an investigator, the lead investigator, with a prepared statement. Here's how that process is supposed to work. The investigator goes out and investigates. That's why they have the word investigator or detective. They detect things, evidence, clues, photographs, DNA, Scooby-Doo. They investigate stuff. And then they go to the prosecutor with their findings, and then the prosecutor determines, A, you have probable cause, or B, you don't have probable cause. But what is not supposed to happen is the prosecutor, right before you're testifying before the grand jury, saying, here is your prepared statement to read to the grand jurors. Now, you charged, Marilyn Mosby, you charged Officer Goodson with misconduct of office. But who committed this offense? I assure you, it was not him who just happened to be on work at at work that day, sitting in his van, who could have cared less, 
if he had to transport Freddie Gray, Wilma Gray, Wilma Rudolph, Weezy Jefferson, George Jefferson, he couldn't have cared less who he had to transport because at the end of the day, that was his duty for that day to transport prisoners. So there was no misconduct there. There surely was no probable cause, since you like to use that word, to convict him, to charge him, to even indict him of second-degree manslaughter. So it gets better. So this Detective Taylor testified during Goodson's trial that she offered to provide her notes to the prosecutor, but they didn't want them. I'm sorry, the lead detective offers to provide you notes, which could be beneficial in your BS manslaughter and second degree murder charges, but you didn't want them. Why is that? Oh, that's right, because when it was time for the grand jury, you had a four-page statement already prepared for this lead detective to follow, and you probably bullied her into reading it because she says she did not feel comfortable challenging the state's attorney. I wonder why. Oh, well, if you don't do this, your storied career of 15 years in law enforcement is out the window. Oh, if you don't do this, you're going to be busted down to patrol and you'll be driving a, a prisoner van or you'll be on traffic detail. I guarantee just like the major was promised something to swear out affidavits when he didn't investigate the case, this detective was likely bullied, intimidated, and to reading that statement before the grand jury to get these indictments on these officers. You know, it's really interesting that, according to Taylor's notes, the medical examiner had told police that Gray's death was an accident. Now, of course, during trial, he disputed that on the stand, but that has to make you think, with all of this other stuff going on, you got prepared statements, you got people signing affidavits who are not investigating stuff, could the medical examiner have told this detective, no, nah, his death was an accident? Oh, no, Mr. Medical Examiner, who needs to be reelected, by the way. Um, we need this to be a homicide because I'm going to charge these six officers and I'm going to look like the Queen Bee, the black queen savior of the city of Baltimore when I get all these racist cops, who three of them were black, by the way, all these racist cops locked up for killing this black man. So, Mr. Medical Examiner, who needs to be reelected, I need this to be a homicide. Hmm. Did it happen? I don't know. This detective says she was told one thing. The medical examiner testified to a different thing. It's questionable, and it leads to misconduct of office. See, I don't know about you, but to me that was very chilling. And I guess it's chilling for me because I've been on the other end of that radio and I've heard officers screaming for help 
and I've heard the fear in their voice. So anytime I hear an officer keying up with that level of anxiety and fear and stress in their voice, to this day it still brings chills to my body. And that was Officer Christopher, Christopher sorry, Dorman in the Fullcroft, Pennsylvania Police Department. It's just outside Philly. It's about 12, 13 miles outside of Philadelphia. He was responding to reports of a man selling drugs, as police do. Remember, crime brings police, not color. So as he was approaching, he was ambushed. He was shot seven times, four times in the chest, once in his face, as you could hear him say, I'm shot in the face, once in his groin, and once in his leg. But the good news is that officer was actually released from the hospital on yesterday. He's recovering. He's recovering quite well. I'm thankful that he had his vest on because those shots to the chest, any four of those could have been fatal. Well, heck, the shot to the face, had it not been more of a graze than a straight shot, could have been fatal. The shot to the groin, the shot to the leg at the right spot could cause you to bleed out and die within minutes. So I'm very thankful that this officer is alive. I'm very thankful that he had that survivor will in him, that fight or flight, because he was still able to call this into dispatch. He did not want to be another statistic. He wanted to survive. He called in the dispatch. He gave his location. He fought. He fought. Luckily, there was another officer there that got him out in time. But that officer was actually taking fire as well. So that officer is very brave in his actions. But let me tell you why this officer survived. What a lot of people don't realize is we as police, we train, we train, we train real-world scenarios. There's a lot of stressful stuff that we do in training to get our heart rate up, to get our adrenaline up, to get our senses up. So when we're in that situation, it is not, "Uh uh-oh, my body doesn't know what to do. Uh Uh-oh, I'm going to crash. Uh-oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Should I fight? Should I flee? Should I do this? We train for that constantly. Stress courses. Stress shooting, stress driving, we train for it. So it's innate in our DNA that when the shit hits the fan, and excuse my language, but when it hits the fan, that boom, we go into survival mode because at the end of the day, we do not want to be another casualty. Survival training is part of the academy. It's reinforced almost daily. It's reinforced at annual in-service. When I say we train for those situations, I mean we train for those situations. See, the average bad guy is not sitting in his house watching videos or going through scenarios or doing real-world training where if the stuff hits the fan for them, that, uh uh-oh, they're going to know what to do. No, it doesn't work that way. But police, you best believe that they train it, they sleep it, they eat it, they breathe it, survival, 
survival, survival, go home. Let me read to you a survival creed that many officers have in their homes. I had it. I know plenty of people that have it. The will to live, to survive the attack, must be uppermost in every officer's mind. Fight back against all odds. Turn the tables on your attacker. Don't quit. Get up off the ground. That is a dead zone for police officers. That's why you hardly ever see police officers wanting to take a fight to the ground. Seize the initiative. Take every advantage. Kick, punch, scratch, bite. Don't give up. Survival. And this is what that full crop officer did. I'm very proud of him for his survival. He did not want to be a victim. He did not want his wife to have to get a call or his girlfriend or his mother or his father. And now he's out of the hospital recovering because he remembered survival. Don't give up. Now, I don't even want to waste too much of my time talking about the knucklehead, the thug that did this. And remember, I have no problem using the word thug because it has no color boundaries. But 33-year-old Dante Brooks Island, Island, whatever, a.k.a. Abdul Wahi, who police say is Muslim. I don't give a damn if he's Muslim, Buddhist, Methodist, whatever he is. The fact is, he was being investigated for drug activity when Officer Christopher Dorman approached. He scuffled with him. Now, this Abdul, Dante, Wesley Snipes, whatever you want to call him, is twice this officer's size. So he pulls out a gun and begins to fire seven times, and I told you where those shots were. Here's where I have a huge problem with this entire thing. He was recently released from prison after serving 15 years. But yet, what happened? He got his hand on a gun. So that goes back to the whole gun control issue. We got members of Congress and Senate having sit-ins, trying to take away gun rights and ban guns and all of this stuff. But it's not the average, ordinary citizen Joe that is going out shooting police officers who are going to the gun store to get their guns. Do you think that Dante Brooks, a.k.a. Abdul, Abdullah the Butcher, because that's what his fat butt looks like, went to a gun store and purchased his gun? No. He probably went 15 miles into the heart of Philadelphia, got with one of his homies, got this gun, and then it was used to attempt to kill a police officer. So now he faces attempted murder of a police officer. Now let me do the math. He served 15 years. He was just recently released. He is a convicted felon in possession of a weapon. So by federal law, that's an automatic 10 years. Add the attempted murder charge. I don't see why this guy would not get a life sentence because clearly the 15 years that he spent in prison did not change his life it may have changed his religion because now he's Abdul Wahi 
who's probably a practicing member of the Nation of Islam and praises Allah, but it did not change his criminal mind, his criminal habits. This guy does not for any reason ever need to step foot out of whatever prison they send him to. And truthfully, let's be honest, he's lucky to be alive. And I don't know if that had to do with officers didn't have a clear shot at the time, which I'm sure that could be it since they were taking fire. But he's lucky to be alive himself because you start shooting out police, guess what? They shoot back. And they don't care if your name is Abdul, and someone may say it's terror-related or religion-related. They don't care if you're using the name Dante. They don't care what name you're using. You start shooting at police, they shoot back. So to you, I'm going to call you Dante because that's what your mama named you. To you, Dante Brooks, I hope you get everything that's coming for you in a court of law. Ten years for being a convicted felon with a weapon. Ten years to serve at 100% plus whatever they can attach to that for the attempted murder of this police officer that was doing his job responding to a report of a crime. you just heard was Forest Acres police officer Robert Cooper and Forest Acres is just outside Columbia South Carolina it's actually a little small suburb that stretches about maybe 10 square miles there inside Columbia South Carolina it surrounds Fort Jackson it's not very big uh, as you know my parents lived there my dad retired there I was stationed at Fort Jackson so I'm very familiar with the area and as I watched this video, I actually knew exactly where they where they were when when this happened. Uh, but let me give you the background of this, and then I want to talk about the shooting and whether it was justified. And you could hear the officer, Officer Cooper, say he almost hit me. He almost hit me. I was barely able to get out of the way. But here it is. So I believe the officer was responding to a loud music complaint. That people had called in. Again, people call the police for a crime. They show up. So he had a legal right to be there, Officer Cooper. But as Officer Cooper approaches, the driver of the vehicle gets flighty, 
puts the car in reverse, backs up. That's when you can hear Officer Cooper telling him to stop, stop, or I'll shoot, which you could clearly hear seven shots that he did. There's a chase. They finally catch up to him. They find two guns in the car, I believe some drugs in the car. So, sounds like a good arrest, right? And for all intents and purposes, it is a good good arrest. You fled from police. They chased you. They caught you. They found guns. They found drugs. It's a legitimate arrest. Fruit of the poisonous tree, if you will. But what I'm more concerned about is the actual shooting and whether it was justified. And again, I did this job for a while and I had people in front of me in cars where they could have run me over. I pointed my gun inside a car several times. Thankfully, I've never had to shoot anyone. But when you hear the officer say, he almost hit me, I was barely able to get out of the way. This is what I'm expecting to see in the video. However, I don't see that in the video. What I do see is really that at no time was Officer Cooper's life in danger. He's not standing directly in front of the car. He's off to the side of it, the driver's side, for the most part. At one point, you can see the driver, who was 17, hold up one of his hands to say, I'm not armed, and the other hand stayed on the steering wheel. So as the car pulls off, you can actually see the driver, the 17-year-old, turn even further to get away from Cooper's body. And it's not like he peeled out at a high rate of speed. I mean, he may have taken off at about 10 miles an hour, and maybe it's because it was like a 1994 Honda Accord and the engine was shot and it didn't have a lot of horsepower. But at any rate, from what you hear in that radio dispatch does not match what the dash cam video shows because I did not see where he was an imminent threat of bodily injury or death by this vehicle. I just didn't see it. Now, again, everything is based on officer perception. So, I wasn't the officer that night. I'm not Officer Cooper. I don't know what his perception was. But my perception of the video is that there was no threat where Officer Cooper easily couldn't have gotten his vehicle without shooting and chased this teen. Now, he did strike the teen at one point. He was shot. I can't remember where. He survived. He was released. He was charged with the guns. And with the drugs. But of course now the NAACP leaders down in South Carolina are saying it was a bad shoot. And that I would never say the driver was right to flee. Which I'm glad they admitted to that point. But it was a bad shoot. Because the officer was not assaulted. Now you know I usually 99.9% .9 of the time will side with the officer and not bring the race card and the NAACP and the Black Lives Matter movement into this. But this one time, I think I would say I have to agree. But I want you to watch the video for yourself. Please don't take my word for it. It's real easy to find. All you have to do is Google it. Just put Forest Acres police officer shoots into car and it will pop up. And see for yourself. See what you think about the officer's actions the driver's actions, was there an immediate 
imminent threat to this officer's life, which forced him to shoot? Or was he overzealous? Was he out of line for using deadly force? Now, granted, yes, a vehicle can be a deadly weapon when it's approaching you at a high rate of speed and there's no other escape but for you to shoot. We've seen it. It happens in police work. People try to run police officers over. It happens. Police officers have been drugged by cars. It happens. I get it. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But when I watch that video, I just don't see it there. Now, will there be any charges brought up against this officer? In hindsight, I doubt it because it will go to a grand jury and they're going to be presented with all evidence, all evidence, which what was the officer's call? What made the driver flee? Oh, he had guns. Oh, he had drugs. Oh, he wanted to get away from the police officer. So will charges come? I doubt it. It's unlikely. But I think, in my opinion, the officer was untruthful in his radio transmission to the dispatcher. He almost hit me. I was barely able to get out of the way. Well, that car was barely moving and you were to the side of it and you fired into the side of the vehicle. It's that simple. There was no threat there. So whether you're charged or not, you, Officer Cooper, Robert Cooper, have to live with the fact that your integrity was questioned by what you said on the radio versus what the video shows. And I don't think you'll ever really be able to get away from that unless your articulation is so good and so convincing that even someone watching that video will believe what you say about being scared that you couldn't get out of the way and he almost hit you. You would have to really articulate and use some very big words to get anyone watching that video to believe that. I just don't see it happening. But again, I don't want to point fingers. I don't want to accuse my perception is there was no threat against Officer Cooper's life when he fired seven shots into that vehicle. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm definitely, and you know this, not excusing the idiot for fleeing from police. I don't recommend that under any circumstances. Whether it's a loud music call, whether you know you got guns in the car and dope in the car, don't run from police. Especially in this day and age when everyone's on edge about police. Don't run from police. Because here's the thing. We as police don't know why you're running. Obviously, there's something you don't want us to find. Obviously, you don't want to go back to jail. Obviously, you have a warrant. Obviously, you have a gun in the car. Obviously, there's dope in the car. So the simple fix to prevent yourself from being shot, don't run from police. Don't even drive in the direction of police with your vehicle because, again, it's officer perception. It's not your perception whether you're going to go tell a jury, well, I really wasn't trying to hit the police officer. I was just driving to try to get away. They don't, they don't want to hear your perception. They want to hear the officer's perception of what he or she thought you were going to do with that vehicle. So the fix to that is don't have guns in your car. Don't have dope in your car and don't run from the police. So here's why he ran. He was charged with failure to stop for blue lights, possession of a stolen vehicle. Hmm. 
Now I'm reminded of a case from a few months ago where the black community down towards Tampa is all in an uproar because these black females who stole a car and ran from police ended up dying. It could have been that same situation here. Unlawful possession of two firearms. Simple possession of marijuana. Unlawful possession of Schedule 1 drug, which is more than likely cocaine. And driving without a license. So that's why he ran. Remember, when people run, they have something to hide that they don't want the police to find out. But outside of all that, the stolen car, all of that good stuff. Yes, it is a legitimate valid arrest because there were crimes committed. The shooting, I question and I will always question that. And I will go out and say, I don't agree with the officer firing into the car. All right, I'm just about out of time. I'm sure you're tired of listening to me. But before I go, as always, I want to do roll call. And this week, I want to honor Deputy Sheriff David Francis Michael Jr., Jefferson Parish Sheriff, Sheriff's Office in Louisiana. He was killed last Wednesday, June 22nd, when he was conducting a subject stop, which is a pedestrian stop, basically, at an intersection on Manhattan Boulevard and Ascot Road in Harvey, Louisiana. He got in a struggle with the individual. At one point, the individual pulled out a gun, fired several times, actually shot and continued to shoot while Sheriff David Michael was on the ground, which is just brutal and overkill in itself. He was captured a short time later. Of course, he's going to be charged with murder, as he should be. He should get the death penalty, in my opinion. But uh, this officer survived by his wife and his father. My prayers to his family. Godspeed to him. Thank you for your service and giving the ultimate sacrifice in what you do. I appreciate you. I love you. We love you. I want to thank you, the listeners, for listening tonight. RadioInfluence.com, every Tuesday, 8 p.m., and exclusively on iTunes immediately after. And follow me on Twitter at Vincent Hill TV. V-I-N-C-E-N-T-H-I-L-L-T-V. Thank you. Good night. To continue the conversation, get updates on the show, and to find out when you can see him on television, follow Vincent on Twitter at Vincent Hill TV. That's at Vincent Hill TV. This has been Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. When you are looking for everything going on in MMA, you want to come to the MMA Insiders Podcast as myself, Jason Floyd, and Sam Capital give you insight you cannot get anywhere else. I've done it all in this sport, a matchmaker, promoter, even an amateur fighter. If you're looking for the inside scoop and inside perspective you can't get anywhere else, MMA Insiders Podcast is your destination. Check out the MMA Insiders Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and RadioInfluence.com.